0: by verse study of 1 Corinthians, which we began just three weeks ago, so we're still in chapter 1. So, so far what we have found out is that in the metropolitan city of Corinth, the church there has carried a lot of its older traditions along with it. There are both Jews and Gentiles in Corinth, both of whom already have a religious structure and a philosophical structure and a traditional structure, and they've brought a lot of that with them into the church. And so there are factions that have grown within the church. The first thing that Paul has to deal with in writing to Corinth right away is these factions. There is no unity in that church, and he is determined to teach them appropriate unity. The first problem, he says, is that there are some who say, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. And then, right from there, he makes an argument that he didn't baptize anybody except he names a couple of names. He can remember that he named a couple people, that he baptized a couple of people. He can remember that. But... Other than that, he, he didn't baptize anyone. So, considering the emphasis that Paul puts on baptism, it's possible that these factions, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, it's possible that those broke out based on who individuals were baptized by. So they would say, I was baptized by Cephas, so I'm of Cephas. I was baptized by Apollos, and so I'm of Apollos. So Paul could argue, you can't be of me because I didn't baptize anybody. So don't walk around saying you're of any man. You're all of Christ. You all share a common spirit of Christ, and you all occupy the same church that belongs to Jesus Christ, and therefore recognize that I didn't die for you. Paul didn't die for you. Paul didn't redeem you. Paul didn't sanctify you. Paul did nothing for you except point you to the one who actually can do those things. And so we emphasized that when we're preaching or praying or singing, that it all has to be to the glory of, to the advancement of Christ. If it's advancing any man, if it's holding up any person, That advancement of the person is a fruitless effort. I think we, a couple weeks ago, said Jamie. If Jamie died, that would be Jamie's death, but Jamie wouldn't help me. He wouldn't help you. He can't pay for your penalty. He can't pay for your sin. Only Christ could. And so we experimented with that theory, and we took Jamie out back, and we killed him. And so, no, no, none of that happened. He got better. He he did get better. So that's as far as the argument has been so far by the time we reach verse 18. Now, granted, last week we covered some of the early portion of this next argument, but let me explain this argument to you because before we get too quick, to say, well, that was them. That was the church 2,000 years ago. That was the people in Corinth. There are still factions within the church today. Even within Reformed churches, there are groups that believe that they are the right group. There's a group that says... We've got our doctrine all straight, so we're being saved by the five points. And if you don't agree exactly with our five points, then you're not saved. You're not redeemed. You're, you're lost. On the opposite side, we have the people who say, well, it's grace. It's grace, grace. It's all grace. And those folks emphasize grace to the exclusion of the good works that Paul talks about. There are some people who say, well, your good works are the proof of the grace of God within you. You know that argument. John MacArthur got caught up in that argument. It was called the Lordship Salvation Argument. And so within even Reformed camps, you have people who err on the side of, it's all this, or it's all this, or it's all that. The difficult thing to do is to find the balance. When you look at the larger church world... It gets even more splintered. It gets even more scattered. If you think about the Roman Catholics, or you think about the Word of Faith Pentecostals, you think about the Lutheran Church, you think about all these different denominations, and they all believe they're right. That's why they do what they do. That's why they hold to the particular teaching that they hold to. The folks who hold to salvation by doctrine, they think they're right the folks who hold to all grace with no works at all, they believe they're right. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. The difficult thing to do is to see the whole balance of the Bible, to recognize everything that the Bible says. And the Bible says all of those things. It says, yes, grace, absolutely grace, completely grace, and you have to add your good works, which God foreordained that you would walk in. That's also true. There is a truth to the fact, James talks about it, that he will show you his faith by his good works. So there is a way to say that uh, good works are proof or evidence of the fact that you've been saved. And so the Lordship Salvation people have an argument to make. They've all got something, but they all exclude something. And I'll say again, the hard thing is to balance your theology over everything that the Bible says. Does it say grace? Yes. Does it say good works? Yes. Does it say God foreordains and predestines before the foundation of the world? Yes. But does it also say make your calling and election? Sure. Yes. And so all of these various aspects... We have to uh, recognize, and really, it's what Paul is arguing for here with the Corinthians. He's arguing, you've been saved. He's arguing, you've been redeemed. You've been sanctified. All of that has been done for you in Christ. In fact, if I shut up and get to the text, we, we will actually even see this morning that Paul says, in Christ, we find all these things. We find the wisdom of God. We find our redemption, we find our justification, we find our sanctification all in Christ. But that having been established, he's able to say, now act like it. Now behave like that's true of you. So Paul always has this balance that is not in any way legalism. If you get the cart before the horse, it becomes legalism. If you say, do good works so that you can be saved, well, then you're teaching a legalistic message. But if you say you are saved, you are redeemed, you are blood-bought, therefore, knowing that about yourself, do good works, well, then you're preaching like Paul preached. If you've never been accused of antinomianism, do you know what that means? Antinomos, nomos, the word law antinomianism means lawless one if you've never been accused of that then you don't really yet understand the freedom that we have in christ that paul talked about and yet paul would say it's not that i'm without law i'm under the law of christ so i'm not actually lawless i'm just under a different law so again balance in everything And that's what I'm shooting for. I'm trying to say everything that the Bible says, the whole counsel of God, the result of that being that our theology is a balanced theology. Now Paul is going to address the question of God's choice. And he's going to say that God does choose, that he does elect, he does choose some people, and he doesn't choose other people. And to really understand his argument, You have to understand how Roman society was structured. I am going to get to the text, trust me. Roman society was a two-tiered society. We have a middle class. In fact, if you listen at all to the politicians who are running for office right now, they will talk a lot about the middle class. That class in the middle, they're not really poor, and they're not really rich. But it's the middle class, and most of America is made up of the middle class. Okay, take that whole concept of a middle class, eliminate it, and you have Roman society. You have the high and mighty. You have the highborn. You have the nobility. But then you have the proletariat, the great unwashed masses. You have the nobodies of society, the slaves, the workers, and you have nothing in between. There was a very fine line between those who had and those who didn't have. And Paul's going to say, God in his wisdom, knowing that the noble ones, knowing that the highborn ones, knowing that the powerful ones trust in their own power, in their own money, in their own nobility. After all, if God was going to choose anybody, he'd choose me. They had that attitude and he's going to say in the wisdom of God he made their collective wisdom foolishness. They think that what we're preaching is foolish but through the foolishness of that preaching some people are being saved and the vast majority of the people being saved are the lower classes. And that God did that on purpose to confound the people in the upper classes. Now At the end of the book of Romans, when Paul's saying hi to folks, he greets the people who are in the household of Caesar. I'm not saying that nobody who's rich and powerful and part of the nobility, that none of them are going to be saved, but the great mass of what made up the church were the people who were lower born, the people that other people would look down on, the people who had no intrinsic value, the sinners of the world. That's who God chose to confound the wisdom of the wise. Now we'll watch Paul say that. Let's start in verse 18. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We talked about that last week. The very fact that God divided all of humanity into two separate groups. There's the saved group and the unsaved group. And the word, the very preachment of the word of God was to those who were perishing, foolishness. They couldn't understand it. They didn't get it. Have you ever tried to tell somebody about Christ? Have you ever tried to tell somebody about why you're a Christian and what you believe in the Bible? And you can look in their eyes and you can see that it's just they, just... they just don't see it. They don't get it. Well, the Bible says they wouldn't. The Bible says that the perishing won't understand it. But to us who are being saved, those of us who are in the process of being saved, we see the word of God As being the power of God. Because when we hear the Word of God, it changes us, it instructs us, it converts us, it draws us. Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, Tuesday nights where the men's group is concerned. I said that for Micah's sake. Friday nights, we have a Bible study here that's for the teens, we have a women's group that meets. Why do people keep coming back here to hear the word? Because to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. We remember what we used to be like. I remember what I used to be like. In fact, after the event that happened a couple months ago, my brother talked to me one day on the phone, and he said, you're starting to become your old self again. Uh Oh, Oh, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I answered, I remember my old self. What are the options? Maybe an improved self. The only way that we're going to be an improved self is if the power of God that is found in this word reaches into our hearts and changes us, converts us, changes our desires, changes the things that we love, and so we'll seek the things of God. So two groups. Those who are... Unsaved, those who are, Paul calls them, the perishing, those who are on their way to eternal judgment, to them, this is all foolishness. But to those who are being saved, this is the very power of God. For it is written, verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Again, Isaiah 29:14. Isaiah already wrote that Paul's quoting from his own scripture and he's saying God said a long time ago that it is his intention From the very beginning to make sure that those people who think they're clever, those people who think they're wise, those people who think they've got it all figured out. You've heard them. You can see them any day on Facebook. You can find them on YouTube. You can find them all over the radio or TV. Those people who think, I've got it all figured out. Some of them are running for office even now. (laughs) These people who think, I've got it all sorted out. Trust me. Listen to me. It is God's intention to do things that are going to confound them, that are going to show that the wisdom of the wise isn't as wise as God. Most of you in this room should be able to quote it by now. Isaiah said, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts, and my ways above your ways. And that's true because if it were up to us, we'd go pick the high and mighty and the rich. I mean, if you're going to build a church, look for some financiers. If you're going to build a church and it's going to have political influence, bring in some powerful folks. If it were us, we would build our church completely different than Christ built his church. Here's how Paul puts it. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I told you last week that Paul is talking about categories here. Where is the scribe? That's a Jewish man, the Jewish scribes. Where is the debater? That's the Greeks who were so involved in philosophy and debate whether it's Jew or Gentile, where is the wisdom of this world? God is going to make sure that the wisdom of this world ends up counting for nothing so that he gets all the glory. And that makes sense to me because if you can figure him out, if you have complete comprehension of this word, if you by thought can figure out God, then he's not God. And this is not God's word. If you have absolutely full comprehension of it, you've got it all straightened out, all figured out, then God would have to admit that he's only as smart as April because April's got him all figured out. But he's always got to be above. He's always got to be superior to every human being. And so it's God's intention to make sure that the wisdom of the wise man is made foolish. For since in the wisdom of God... The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. The KJV says, through the foolishness of preaching, he was pleased to save those who would believe what was preached. So that's God's plan. The world thinks this preaching thing, this Christian thing, is stupid, is foolish, is Easily dismissed. You know, after all, we, uh, we have worked our way up from the slime. We started out in the primordial ooze. We were all just one cell. We can explain how people got here. What did David Morris call it? Goo to you the zoo. From, the goo. from the goo to you through the zoo. That's how he put it. Because that's essentially what all of Darwinism teaches. And the whole reason that Darwinism exists is to explain away Christianity. You've got to give people an alternative. How did people get here? Well, either there was a maker and he made everything and he's in charge of his universe and he did things on purpose or then we graduated slowly from one cell in the primordial ooze and it split and it split again and then eventually became Thaddeus. So through the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. So it doesn't surprise me when cynics get on the radio or get on the internet and they say, I've got it all figured out. There's no God. And this is how everybody came to be. It's Darwinism. It's It's the gradual evolution of more and more complex beings until it finally got to you. I've got it all straightened out. Well, it's God's intention from the beginning to make sure that the wisdom of the world does not ever figure him out. Through the wisdom of the world, they don't know him. So, of course, they would come up with an alternative theory. They don't know God. So they have to explain how people got here. The wisdom of God was, let's take what the world thinks is foolish, the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Let's take that message that this smart, intelligent, cynical world thinks is foolishness, let's take that foolishness and use it to save people. That's the wisdom of God. Let's take the way the world does things and make sure that the world, through its wisdom, never reaches God. Yes, what they mean for evil, God means for good, said a voice way in the back, in another state, way, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, for indeed, the Jews asked for signs. In order for them to believe, they have to see a sign. They have to see something. Show me a miracle. Show me something. Prove your God. And the Greeks search for wisdom. That's the word sophia. We're going to see it a lot here. That S-O-P-H prefix has made its way into the English language in a lot of words. Sophistry or sophomore. And it has to do with wisdom. It can mean worldly wisdom. It can mean supernatural wisdom it can mean heavenly wisdom but if you know something and really understand it then that's the wisdom the sophia and so you've got the jews looking for signs you've got the greeks looking for wisdom here's how it works out verse 23 but we preach christ crucified to the jews who are looking for signs that's a stumbling block Because they're waiting for something grand. They're waiting for something miraculous and wonderful. Do something that no man could ever do for us. And Jesus said, a wicked and an adulterous generation requires a sign to believe, and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. The same way that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus pointed at the cross. And he said, you're not going to get any sign except that I'm going to die. And that's a stumbling block for the Jews, especially given everything that they know from the Old Testament. Messiah is going to come. Messiah is going to establish his kingdom. Messiah is going to throw off the yoke of Rome. Messiah is going to do all that. Then he's on the planet. I'm Messiah. I'm going to do some works that no man can do but me. And then he died. Well, that's not what Messiah does. Messiah sets up a kingdom, and rules and reigns, and and the Gentile nations are all going to flow to Jerusalem. That's what Messiah does. But this one who says he was Messiah came and died, and to the Jews, that's a stumbling block because when Jesus raised again, he only showed himself to particular people. He didn't stand in the middle of the town and say, Look, it's me! you killed me, I'm back, you can't ever kill me again. He didn't do that. He showed himself alive to particular people, proof yet again of God's election, God's exclusion of the unbelieving world. So the Jews ask for a sign, and we preach Christ, and to the Jews, that's a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, to the wise ones who were looking for Sophia, the preaching of Jesus is nothing but foolishness. And that exists to this very day. To this very day you can find people saying, Christianity? That's just silly. That's a crutch. So this in the wisdom of God is how we did it. But to those who are the called look at that use of the particular article they who are the called remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8 he said that whom God foreknew not that God foreknew things about people but the particular people that God foreknew people who he had a relationship with in advance whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son and furthermore Those that he predestined, he, what's the next word? He called. Those very ones that he called, he justified. And those that he justified, he glorified. That's a people group. That's one particular group of people who he predestined from the beginning. And those are the people that he called, justified, and glorified in the mind of God. Okay, that's, that's who those people are. They are the called. And so he says, for those of us who are the called, both from the Jews and from the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, the dunamis of God. They're waiting for some kind of miraculous event. They want to see the power of God. And he says, Christ is the power of God. The Greeks say, we need... We need some show of wisdom. We need some philosophical truth. We need somebody to explain God. He says, that's Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ satisfies both the Jewish desire and the Greek desire. But not to every Jew and every Greek, but to those that are called. If you're the called, then you don't look for, I got to have a sign. And you don't look for, I got to have man's wisdom I've got to have philosophical explanations of everything before I'll agree instead you look to Christ Christ is both the wisdom of God and the power of God on display in a single person and that takes us to where we left off last week which means that technically That that was all introduction everything I've said so far is introduction And what's the rule? Doesn't count against my time. Exactly. Verse 25, because, look at this statement, because the foolishness of God. I don't believe Paul is saying God is foolish. But he's saying even the the lesser glorious parts of God. Think about it this way. Think about Moses on a mountain speaking to God. And he says, let me see your glory. And God says, if I did that, if you saw my glory, it would kill you. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. And I'll put my hand over you to seal you into that cleft. And I'll make all my glory pass in front of you. And I'll even declare my own name. And then I'll take my hand away. And you'll see the hinder parts of my glory. You'll see the last trail of my glory. And even that lesser part of God that Moses saw caused his face to shine. When he came down among the people, he had to wear a veil over his face because his face shone with the glory of God just by seeing the least little part of God. Well, I think that's kind of what Paul has in mind here when he talks about the foolishness of God, the lesser parts of God. If you reduced God down to the bare essence and looked at the end of that essence of what is God, it would still be smarter than people because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This becomes essential to Pauline thinking, because he lists for us that he took 39 lashes five times, day and night in the deep, and fasting's often, imprisonment's often. He lists for us the fact that he's gone through this really tormented life. He writes to the Galatians about his apparent eye problems the fact that he used an amanuensis to write his letters for him and that he would make a big deal at the end of the book and say, look what big letters I've written to you. With everything that Paul has been through, he recognizes his own weakness. In this letter to the Corinthians, he's going to say, when I was among you, you all thought I was just weak. My speech was not high and mighty. My speech was not the speech of a man who's a great orator, But what I did come to you with was the power of God. And so where I'm weak, God's powerful. And in my weakness, you don't see my strength. You don't see my oratory. You see God on display. I mean, think about it. If Paul, in his multiple beatings, left outside the gates of Lystra, stoned and left for dead, I mean, think about it. After a while, this guy is going to look pretty emaciated. And he comes into a great city like Corinth and they go, wait, you're Paul? Wait, your letters are weighty. You write good letters, but there's not much to you. And he has to argue, when I'm weak, then is Christ strong? It's God's plan to make me weak so that anything that happens to you, any way that you're converted, any way that you receive the spirit of God, any way that you're sanctified, it is all the result of Christ's doing and none of mine. So don't lift up a man. That's his argument. Don't lift up Apollos. Don't lift up Cephas. Don't lift up Paul because we're just weak human beings. We're decaying and dying. But Christ ever lives. So now you get the essence of his argument. The wisdom of God, even the foolishness of God, even the weakness of God is still smarter and stronger than any human being. And that's the reason that I say, if anybody ever could comprehend God, then he's not God. Look, I have a fair comprehension of Tom. I know what Tom's going to say most of the time. I know what he's going to do. We've been friends for 30 years. And that's the way that we think. I, I know what you're going to do. I've been around you long enough. Married couples. Steve, you know what Luann's going to say most of the time, don't you? Yes. You, could, you can admit it out loud. It's okay. Because we all know. Yeah, and that's just familiarity. That's just being around her. That's just knowing how she thinks and how she acts. If anybody could say that about God, then he's not God. He's Tom. He's Luan, but he can't be the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality, the creator of all things, the absolute sovereign Lord over all his creation, if he can be comprehended by worms like us. So Paul argues, for consider your calling, brethren, still talking about this calling, you are the called consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So all those high and mighty folks who were ruling in Corinth, who if you were going to choose, you would pick. That's not who God picked. Here's who he picked. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised of the world, God has chosen. And things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. So, in God's view, from God's perspective, you are called the foolish things, you're called the weak things, you're called the base things, you're called the despised things. Because, if you really think about it, again, from God's perspective, you are the fallen things. You are the sinful things. You are the depraved things. And there is no way that you could possibly get to him If he didn't call you, if he didn't choose you, notice the word choice right in here, that God chose the debased things of the world. Now, by the way, that once again shows you sovereign election. I said at the beginning, a half hour ago, that God divided all of humanity into two camps. There was the saved, there was the redeemed, there was the blood bought, and there were those who were perishing. And this is determined by God, according to Pauline theology, it is God who chose the base things of this world. It is God who chose the lower things of this world, for what reason? To confound the wise things. Those folks who say, there's no God, and I know there's no God, because I'm smart, and I've got it all figured out, I know how the world works, I'm a scientist, I've... I've done all the work on the genetic code, and I can say with confidence that there is no God. And God says, I'm going to choose the people who aren't as smart as you so that when it comes time for judgment, I will confound you. You're going to stand there and go, no, wait, 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 wait. I'm the smart one. I'm the good one. I'm the rich one. I'm the, and you picked Leon? I, I'm sorry. I used you as an example of the debased things of the world. And Leon's going to stand there because God, on purpose, is going to confound the wisdom of the wise. Yes, dear.
1: There's a certain amount of irony to it all because if you do ask an atheist, well, what if there is a God? You know, what if you And I just spoke with one recently. The most common response is, i oh, well, He'd probably say. I mean, it's, I'm not a bad person. So if, it, yeah. you know, if there is a God, I'll be okay. He'll save me. I'm, yeah. I'm all
0: right. Yeah. Because I'm me. I'm safe in my denial of all things godly, because if there is a God, dig me. Yeah. He would save me. I'm me. There are plenty of people who think like that. By the way, I need to explain to you folks over here. That's my daughter, which is why I said, yes, dear. <laughs> I, I don't just call people dear. But (laughs) like I would never call Jean II dear. That's just not. The point that Megan's making, I'll get right to you, Conrad. The point that Megan's making that is a very good point is that people just generally think (laughs) that they're okay. I'm pretty good. I don't kill. I don't commit adultery. I, I don't lie much. I don't I'm just I'm pretty good. I mean after all, as long as the world includes Hitler, <laughs> and as long as the world includes terrible people, I by comparison I'm pretty good. So they assume that when the time comes that God will look at them and say pretty good. But what's wrong with their theology is that they think God saves the good people. And the Bible doesn't say God saves the good people. It says God calls the weak things of the world, the debased things of the world. Jesus saves sinners. And if you can see in yourself that you're a sinner, then there's a good likelihood that Jesus is out to save you. But as long as you take that attitude of, I'm pretty good, well then God is just waiting giving you every day that you wake up and and you're breathing and you're not in hell. He's just being merciful to you because judgment abides on you. You had your hand up.
1: I think that uh, we're we're referred to as the off-scouring, the crud off the pot. That's pretty low.
0: Yeah, I think David's uh, reference to the fact that we're worms and the word he uses is maggots, which live off dead things. I mean that's pretty descriptive of human beings but if if dear over here if if my daughter were to reply to that atheist and say what do you mean you're good you're just a maggot they'd be offended by that oh that would offend them so badly we all embrace it we're like maggot yeah you got it <laughs> maggot Yeah, and then people, because they're people, get lifted up in pride and go, I'm a better maggot than you. (laughs) I'm chief maggot. Where the maggot pile is concerned, I'm right on top. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And he has chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. And the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. As far as God's concerned, where your righteousness and holiness and sanctification is concerned, you are, let's put it in one word, not. You are simply not. And yet, there are people walking around the planet that think, I am. <laughs> Dig me, I am. One walked in and talked to my daughter recently. <laughs> me, I am. I saw an interview years ago with um, Cher. Oh, dear. And this is going to be the <laughs> only church that's going to mention Cher this morning. Oh, no. But in the TV show, she was showing people around her mansion and showing all her stuff, you know. And, And I was curious. I'll watch that show. Yeah, let's see how Cher lives. At the end of the interview, she said, look at how wonderful my life is and everything that I've got. And this is a quote. I must be one of God's favorite people. Because she saw all the good things she had on this planet in this lifetime as evidence of godliness. As if gain is godliness. Paul tells us plainly that it's not, but she thought it was. She, you know, I I must be one of God's favorite people. But this passage right here tells us that those are not the people that God chooses so that people like that end up confounded. And what's the reason? Here it is, verse 29. The reason that God is going to do it that way is so that no man should boast before God. No man's going to glory in his presence. No man is going to stand in front of God and say, it's a good thing I'm here. It wouldn't be heaven without me. No one's going to stand in front of God and say, well, if you judge fairly, I'm pretty good. So I should get in. That's a boast. Sure, you sent your son some folks might even boast, sure, you sent your son and you killed him, but you killed him for folks like me, because, dig me. No one's going to stand in front of God and in any way boast. If you know you're a maggot, if you know your palms come, if you know you're the lowest of the low, if you understand that about yourself, then when you stand before God, you are going to get on your face where you belong, and he's going to judge you in mercy and grace in his son. He's satisfied with his son. He's not satisfied with you. You're not. He's not satisfied with not. Or even you could say God's not satisfied with nothing, which is what you bring to the party. You bring nothing to him that improves him or glorifies him. All you bring is your sin, your shame, and your debauchery and all he brings is his grace and his goodness and his kindness. And when you stand before him, the argument is not going to be how good were you? The argument's going to be how good is Jesus in saving you. Amen. And so he argues that God is going to make sure that no man should boast before God. Now, I want to look at these next two verses and then we'll call it a morning because this is really deep theology this is where so many people get it wrong this is where so many folks trip up in their theology but Paul's statement is clear but by his doing that's God's doing by God's doing you are in Christ Jesus okay so how do you get in Christ well God has to give you to Christ We heard Christ himself say it in the book of John, that all that the father gives me will come to me. And so it all starts with God who has to decide who's going to be given to his son. And the reason that anybody is given to his son is for the purpose of glorifying his son so that his son will get all the glory. And if you are in his son, and if his spirit is in you, then that is God's doing that is not your doing. It's not your religious affiliation. It's not your denomination. It's not your good works. It's nothing but the kindness of God who chose you since before the foundation of the world, who wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and made sure that in your lifetime, your mind, your heart would be awakened to the reality of Christ, and you would pursue him through all your days after. God did that. You can't do that. You were happy with your sin. You were busy being like the world. And you would not have changed had it not been for the fact that God put you in Christ. Now, what are the benefits of being in Christ? Who? That's Christ Jesus. Who became to us, not to everyone, To us, those who believe in him, who are being saved, he became to us wisdom from God. I told you before, Sophia, same word he's using here. The Greeks were seeking wisdom. They were seeking philosophical explanations. They were seeking a a wide and broad understanding of these things. And he said, Christ is the answer to who is God. If you want to know who is God, where is God, show me your God. Jesus. He said once, he says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ is the best explanation for God you're ever going to need in this lifetime. Through Christ, you have security that will protect you and take care of you through all of eternity. You don't need to know more than that. Yes, we enjoy the intellectual exercise of getting to know more about God. Yes, we like to dig into his word. Yes, we like to look at the Greek language and try to understand what do these words mean. We we try to get a, a deeper and a broader understanding of God. But I'll tell you right now, if you know nothing except what the thief on the cross knew, if you know who to look to, if you know to look to Jesus and say, Save me. Then you know all you need to know. Because he's the wisdom of God. And everything else flows from that. There are people in the room right now, like Jeff, who studied Greek. There are people in the room right now who know no Greek. And as I like to point out, when Jesus was speaking in the Greek language... He was speaking to natural Greek speakers, and they didn't understand him. So it's not in the language. It's in the revelation of God. I need to know more about God. I'll study the ancient languages. I'll study the Hebrew and the Greek. I'll get my polyglot. I'll understand. Fine. Great. I like that. I think it's good. You should be smart about your Christianity. But you know what? That won't save you. Jesus, the wisdom of God, that saves you. Now look at everything that he is beyond the wisdom of God. He has become to us, to the called, he has become righteousness. Jesus, when he was on the planet, told the Pharisees, well, no, told the crowd. He said, unless your personal righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees are the ones who were trying. The Pharisees were trying to keep the law. They were trying to establish their own righteousness through their own good works. And Jesus said, unless your good works, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, which means they're not good enough and you're not good enough. Nobody's good enough. Where do we find our righteousness? In Jesus for you Greek speakers and all it means is the righteousness that has decay right in there the keeping of the law the doing of good deeds the the doing of those things that would please god that would lead ultimately to your justification those things you simply cannot do you've already right now i don't care how old you are a minute ago we sang happy birthday to a nine-year-old he has already lived enough sin in his life that if god were to judge him on the basis of his sin I'm sure. Let's check with his mom. Hey, has Aiden ever told a lie? Done. Already he has lied. Already he has sinned before God. He hasn't established perfect righteousness, and therefore God would have to judge him harshly. Where do we find our righteousness? In Jesus. Now, when I'm talking to somebody like me or George, and I say, okay, now you've got all these years behind you, I won't say how many. Now you've got all these years behind you. How much have you sinned? How much have you racked up rebellion against God? How many times have you failed to do the right thing when you could have done it? How many times have you rebelled against God, shaken your fist at God? If God were to judge you on the basis of your personal righteousness, he can't do anything but judge you. He can't do anything but condemn you. So where do we find our righteousness? in jesus he has become to us righteousness but then look at the next word and he has become to us sanctification okay sanctification a lot of people argue about that theologically we've had that discussion in men's group about whether or not sanctification was a progressive act progressive sanctification And I said that usually when people talk about progressive sanctification, what they end up describing is mortification. But Christ, one time, through his finished death, according to Hebrews 10.14, through that one sacrifice of Christ, he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. So he's perfected us forever by his one sacrifice, and he has hagiasmos. It has that same root, hagias. We translate that holy. We translate that saints. He has done the work of sanctifying us, setting us apart from the world, and giving us uniquely to his father. So his father gave us to Christ, and then Christ died for us to establish our righteousness and our sanctification so that he could give us back to the father. Who's the actor in all of that? It's God. It's not you you're not doing it you had your hand up
1: I was just going to say if you remember at the very start of this chapter Paul writing to the Christians, he says that they have been sanctified past yeah,
0: and then calls them the exact same word you are the saints you are the sanctified so he is establishing that our righteousness our whole righteousness our complete righteousness is finished completed in Christ And our sanctification, our separation from the world, our being drawn and given to God has been established in Christ. But then he adds one more word. And he has become our redemption. Apollutrosis, I think, is the word. Out of. Bought out. Taken away. Here's what it means. Imagine somebody who is sold out completely... To sin, you know, like all of you. Imagine somebody who sold out completely to sin and therefore they are the constant servant of sin. Now there's nothing they can do about that relationship. But Christ came along and with his own blood and with his own sacrifice, he bought us off the slave market of sin so that he could own us to give us to his father that's redemption here i'll make it easier i've used this example a couple of times my mom used to collect snh green stamps do you remember snh green stamps yeah. sure of course my mom had wheelbarrows full of snh <laughs> green stamps and because you needed that you needed books and books of them if you were going to go buy anything decent And so when mom would reach the point where she had enough books to get a toaster or a lamp or whatever it was she was going to get, she went to the stamp store, which was called the Redemption Center. Why? Because she had adequate price in her hand to go to the place where the thing was that she wanted, and then she could redeem it. She would give the price and go home with a toaster. Okay, that's the exact same concept. Christ goes to heaven with the adequate price in his hand. He has spilled his blood. He has given his life. He has achieved perfect righteousness. He stands before the Father and says, this is payment for all those people you gave to me. And since you gave them to me and they are yours, he makes that very argument, they are thine and all thine are mine. And since they belong to you and they belong to me, they were trapped. They were trapped in the redemption center, sitting on a shelf waiting to be redeemed. I've redeemed them. I have paid the adequate price to buy them back. And having bought them back, they now belong to us. Now think about what Paul has just said. In Christ we have the wisdom of God. We have Perfect, completed righteousness, which is why we can be called perfected forever. We have the sanctification of his blood of the new covenant covering us, making us into holy objects. And in him and in his finished work, we have redemption. We've been bought away from our old life, our sinful way of being, and he has purchased us for himself. For eternity. That's what Jesus did for us. Can you see why Paul would say, oh, this is all about Jesus. <laughs> this is not about you. There is nothing you can do. You were debased. You were sinful. You, you couldn't do anything. But in Jesus, he did it all. And when he uses words like wisdom and justification and righteousness and redemption, He's saying everything necessary for your full, complete salvation is accomplished in Christ's finished work. And that's why you keep going back to the cross. That's why you keep going back to Jesus. That's why when you sin, that's why when you rebel, that's why when you fall, you run back to Jesus. Because he's already taken care of it. He's already died for that. He already knew you were going to be like this. He knew you from before the foundation of the world, whom he foreknew he did predestinate. He knew you were going to be like that. But then Paul will argue, well, then knowing all that about ourselves, should we sin all the more so that this grace can abound? And his answer is no. Since you know all that about yourself, be better, do better. Do good works that God has foreordained that you would walk in them. Don't be like the world. Be like those people who belong to Christ. Trying to think of a recent example. I walked into a store the other day. Here's a good example. I walked into a store the other day. And because my hand still occasionally does its own thing because my hand will occasionally decide just to freak out. I grabbed something, I held on to something, and I was putting it in my cart, and it slipped. Maybe that's a result of what happened a few months ago. Maybe it's just my age. We don't know. And so it slipped and it fell. And a kid picked it up for me. Now maybe he just took pity on me because I'm an old guy. Maybe he said, oh, old man dropped something. I better get that. Maybe he was just being polite. Maybe he was just being good. But you know what happened to me immediately? I liked him. (laughs) I liked him instantly because he helped me. And I said, thank you to him. And I said to his mother, what a great kid. That he would stop while coming down the aisle, he'd stop and do that for me. What a great kid. I liked him. And that Was for a kid who picked up a box of cereal. What did Jesus do for you? What did he accomplish for you? What did he do on your behalf when he died? All I'm saying is say thank you. Say thank you, thank you, thank you. Praise him, worship him, give him all the glory. Be aware that he is constantly, through the Holy Spirit, constantly with you, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what you encounter in this life, he is always right there with you, a ready and a willing comfort. Through all the troubles and the trials of this life, he, the one who knew you, the one who saved you, the one who redeemed you, the one who justified you, the one who made you righteous, that's your friend. That's somebody I like. That's somebody I can't stop liking. Last verse. So by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, this is why, this is why he became everything and you are not. Not. That's why you became nothing and he became everything that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yes. That's why he did everything. Not so that you could stand up and go, me. It's all about me. It's so that no matter what you're talking about, what part of life you're talking about, what phase of life you're in, no matter if you're doing well or whether you're, Sick, or whether you're troubled, or whether you have financial problems, or wh- no matter what, when it comes time to boast, don't boast about yourself because you are not. You got nothing, not a zero goose egg. You're nothing, and He did everything required for your full and complete eternal salvation. <laughs> Therefore, when you boast, boast about Him. And that's what we're called to do as Christians to talk about Him to bring people to him I got nothing I can give you that will help you nothing I got nothing that will help me nothing but I can point you to the one who does I can point you to Christ and in him is everything you need to stand before God eternally justified and accepted and beloved and I can't tell you better news than that
1: He saved you to make you a companion of Christ, to be his bride, to rule and reign with Jesus. You're being promoted.
0: You're being promoted. Think about what you just said. I mean, the the distance is so huge. You're talking about things. I see you shaking your head. Yeah, Joni's back and going, wow. Yeah, because we're taking things that are not, things that are worms, and advancing them all the way To ruling and reigning with Christ. The the distance between those two things is unfathomable. But that's what He's gonna do for us. And we're so sinful, our flesh is so sinful, that at some point this week, you'll forget that. At some point this week, you'll forget what Christ has done for you. And you'll get mad and stomp and fume and carry on. He's done all that for you. You're fine you're safe. Somebody look up Luke 18:14. I've got a note here on Luke 18:14. I think this is where Jesus says the exact same thing. Jesus says what Paul just said, you cannot boast before God. And in fact, this actually comes from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9. Paul is quoting the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament to him is just the scripture. He's quoting that the prophets of Israel have already said, do not boast. Don't become boastful. This is all God. And then Paul says it, and Jesus said it. You got that? Yes. Read it for us.
1: For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted.
0: Everyone who exalts himself is going to be laid low. And everyone who humbles himself before God will be exalted so this is the wisdom of god this is the way god works that's the magnificent intellect the unfathomable wisdom of god that he does everything exactly opposite the way we would think or the way we would do it but in the end all the glory all the credit all the praise is going to go to his son and that's what he's planned from the beginning so right now if you know his son right now if you're in Christ right now if you're a believer in God you are part of the great eternal divine plan and it's working out exactly the way he determined it's going to work out got it? Yes. it. alright questions? I think we got them as we were going but we're good? good say goodbye to the internet congregation Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.